from VinePairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So what's going on, guys? How we doing? <laughs> We're we good? doing good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm in the throes of a plumbing quasi-emergency in my house, but you know, other than that, we're good. Oh, did you clog uh, the toilet? No, no. I wish it was something that simple. That's not an emergency. <laughs> what that's just a, that's just that a regular be? occurrence in this house. Uh, <laughs> no, we uh, we unfortunately had an issue with our toilet leaking, and we discovered it after it had leaked uh, into the floor. So uh, we're, oh. we're, dealing, we're dealing with that. You know the funny things, I guess, I, and you, you always, it, someone else in our office recently had, I think, the like, the very common New York experience of a, of a bathroom emergency where mm-hmm. the person above you the has <laughs> the leak and then the ceiling caves in. Yeah. I had yeah. that twice in my apartment in the East Village and once already in Brooklyn. I've had oh, it no. It's like, it yeah. always happens. You're like, what happened here? <laughs> and they're like, well, oh, just patch that up. Yeah. That's because the pipes in this entire city are old. Old. <laughs> really old. old. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry for your emergency. It's a problem with having people live over you, right? Like you just, yeah. you're you're subject in so many ways to what they may or may not do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just put that, just just toss that down the toilet. It's fine. Yeah, you whatever. <laughs> well, and, and as coupled with, as Joanna mentioned, that, you know, there aren't very many, there's a lot of old plumbing and this is an old house. It's a hundred year old house. So oh my goodness. Uh, not oh. a shock, not a shock that, uh, it's true. There were people in Seattle a hundred years ago. I know neither of you believe it, but it's true. Wait, how did they protect themselves from all the rain? <laughs> Well, <laughs> shitty plumbing, as it turns out. Um, yeah. So otherwise, so I've been drinking lots to to deal with this uh, oh, stress. Sorry, of, man. That sucks. Yeah. No, it's okay. So it's, what have I you mean, been drinking then? So, yeah. This is why you get homeowners insurance. Um. Mm-hmm. So I've been having drinking a fair bit of uh, red wine, as you know. The weather has, uh, as Adam alluded to, we fully entered the rainy season here in Seattle. Actually, came later than normal this year, but uh, we are there. And a couple of things I've been along with my red wine. I've been making a lot of uh, sort of fall winter foods, made some okay. uh, really tasty braised short ribs the other day. I, had I a, saw that. I saw that yeah, on the yeah. had those seven uh, Vigna Tondonia from uh, Lopez y Heredia, uh, beautiful old nice. uh, Rioja. I saw that too. Yeah. Well, you know, I do post my I do post my, my wine for sure and food sometimes, depends on how interesting it is. And then uh, like the kid's mac and cheese doesn't get posted so often. Mm, and then, you should uh, go highbrow. You get some troughs in there. <laughs> That's true. Yes, I'm not sure Saul's ready for white truffle mac and cheese. But on the other hand, who's to say he's not? I think he is. I think he is. I think you're advancing that palette. Actually, what I'm not ready for is uh, that being the only thing he'll accept once he gets used to it. Get out. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, the other couple of things had a bottle of 2016 cabinet riesling from JJ Prum, a great producer in the Mosul, uh, from the Velliner Sonnener Vineyard. One of my favorite, just consistent year in year out bottlings. Uh, really tasty. Had that with some uh, dim sum that we got takeout because that was like the day that everything uh, that maybe quite literally should hit the fan. And so I was like, I'm not, I can't deal with cooking. So uh, we got some takeout and that was a, a nice bottle to go with that. And then also been playing around. Caitlin has been really in the mood for sort of white Negroni riffs. So been doing a lot of that uh, playing with, uh, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, there's a local uh, Amaro producer uh, called Fast Penny Spirits. They make what they call their America or yeah, Amara. No, I couldn't get this wrong. It's like American plus uh, Amaro. It's like Amaro. Amar Americano or something, but that's not right either. Sorry, guys. I'm I'm, I'm butchering it on air. But they <laughs> uh, make a, a white Amaro of sorts, and so I she really likes that as the sort of as a component in 
something that is analogous to a white Negroni. And I kind of messed her up in a good way with uh, using some Blanco tequila in it instead of gin one time. And she was like, oh, this is interesting. So kind of a fun riff works well in that. I don't I don't love it in a I'm not as big a fan of using tequila in a classic Negroni formulation. It can work, um, but it's not I don't like it quite as much. But in this white Negroni format, I actually think it really uh, plays nicely. So that's kind of where I've been. How about you, Joanna? Nice. I've I've had some uh, really delicious Italian wines lately. Lots of red wine as well. Um, some nebs. Oh well, yes. I wanted to talk about the um, Renato Roddi Barolo, the twenty eighteen, and uh, an Etna Rosso from Tornatore. That was really delicious as well. The Barolo was like next amazing. level. Yeah, yeah, I think that was one of the best wines I've had this year. That's where did you yeah. have it at the office? We had it at the oh, office. Yeah, very nice. very. Luckily, was able to check that out, um, and I hope to drink more of it in the future. Um, <laughs> also, had a really delicious Grignolino last night um, from a producer called La Mariah. Cool. Um, that was really good. It was chilled. It was at a local, a new local neighborhood restaurant that we went to to celebrate Evan's birthday. You had a question for you about that, by the way. Yeah. So, first of all. You have two pictures of yeah. Evan, one at the beginning of the meal, one at the end of the meal. He's holding <laughs> yeah. a martini. Uh-huh. Was that the martini the whole t- the same nope. martini the whole time? No, no. Okay. I was like, I don't think yeah. that there's like just been one martini the whole dinner. But you could have pulled that off. You could have told me yes. No, no. Let me tell you how Evan <laughs> decided to drink for through his birthday for dinner. For his birthday, yes, please. He started with a Negroni. Nice. Then he had a martini. Okay. Then he had a glass of red wine. Okay. And then he had another martini. It's his birthday. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did think the uh, martini plus creme brulee combo was interesting. But, it you know, whatever, so good. whatever it looks like. I was like, I, was like I, I can't tell if this is the same martini or not. Yeah. Must investigate. <laughs> I was like, okay, interesting, interesting. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and then he had a scotch when we went, got home. Yes. <laughs> it's his birthday. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So that was good. Lots <laughs> So great wine. What about so you, Adam? Good. So first, of all, I have a question for you, for you both, because we we're talking a little about the mac and cheese truffles. Uh-huh. How do you guys feel about like all these like high low things we see, especially on social? Like, there's a few psalms who tried to popularize the like going. I will never do this. I think it's the biggest waste of time. But going to McDonald's and getting the fillet of fish and then dumping the caviar on top of the fillet oh. of fish and then eating it with like a bottle of champagne or something. And I'm like, this is so dumb. <laughs> but I see tons of people doing it. I'm curious, like, is it just is that just because like the like social goes crazy? I don't I don't really get the whole high low thing. Like, I, I actually don't think I would ever get white truffles and like shave them over craft instant mac and cheese. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't see the point of that. Yeah, I mean, I get I get the social media appeal yeah. or something like that, right? Because it seems just so wacky, wacky to do something like that. Um, and I think that those types of things really play well on social media. But I, but I, I don't know, I guess. Yeah, it, I guess for me, it's like the quality of the, yeah. the low thing would really detract from yeah. whatever you're putting on top of it. Well, that I was, think that this is yeah. a whole like... It's a, it's another way of being sort of conspicuously, you know, conspicuously consuming this thing in a way that feels irreverent, but is actually, I think, an even bigger fuck you. Like, I, <laughs> if you're going to eat caviar, fucking do it the right way. Don't fuck around with bugles or whatever. Like, that's yeah. that's some bullshit to me, and it's a way of being like, I don't, or, or dumping on a fillet of fish. It's like I don't. This thing is so so you know mundane to me that I'll put it on whatever. Who cares? 
and that to me is like it's distasteful in a in a specific way that yeah part of it's probably that it plays on social fun- well but it's also like like I said I think some some high foods just like just accept that if you're going to be the person on social media eating caviar eat it with the fucking blini or whatever right like do it mm-hmm. the right way and don't be an ass about it because like yeah as you were saying Joanna it it undeniably lessens the experience and if you're lessening you know white truffles on craft mac and cheese like if you're lessening the experience of this incredibly expensive luxe ingredient then i think you come off like a big, even bigger jackass than the person head. who's like yeah <laughs> here's my beautifully made pasta with white truffles on it like i'm just doing this thing because it is special it's preserving the sort of special nature of it yeah i think you really do come off like a shithead yeah uh, so what did i drink this week <laughs> so so i went to the launch event for tip tops new espresso martini canned espresso martini and uh sorry sorry to miss that yeah i love a tip top and i love a tip top and that was awesome and it's really good espresso martini and i'm not a big fan but it's like nice little size they were doing it where they were dumping the espresso martini into a nice tiny little shaker filled with ice and then shaking it so it would get the really foamy head and then pouring it into the coupe um, Did they partner with a coffee maker? Counterculture. Product? Oh, it was a partnership. Okay. Yeah, so it's Counterculture and them together. So it's nice. Counterculture Coffee. So the the event was at Counterculture here in New York. It makes sense. Um, it's, it's smart. It's the first one I've seen that's done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard maybe there's some rumor maybe someone's doing one with another big coffee chain, but uh, they're the first that I saw, and it was really cool. And then it's like I think um, I want to say, and I'm only just assuming this because when you left we got bags of coffee, Big Trouble, that Big Trouble might be the coffee that's probably in it because that's sure. the coffee they use. That's like their main espresso at Counterculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was really delicious. It was very strong. I was like, in terms of caffeine, I was like, woo, let's go. <laughs> when we left, I was like, let's, let's go hang out, which uh, is why I don't drink them. But I could see <laughs> how, like, it would be, I was talking to Neil, who's the owner of Tip Top, one of the founders, um, and he was saying how, like one of their pushes is into like concert venues and you could see how this would do really well at a concert venue. Cause like a lot of people at concert venues are like choking down Red Bull and vodkas just because they're trying to, they want to get a little bit tipsy, but they also want to stay awake for the show and be more amped. And this is a much tastier version of that. Yeah. Right. So I could see these doing really well at concert venues across the country. Well, and Adam, you would know better than I would, but I think there's also been a, a huge change, I think in certain concert venues, especially that, where like there's a lot of people who who in the same way we were talking about the sort of VIP tailgating experience at sporting mm-hmm. events, there are people who you know if you're spending a couple hundred dollars to go to a concert, you're seeing a huge touring artist. You probably are also want to spend money on quality drinks. You don't want to choke down a Red Bull and vodka. And the the venues, I mean, dep- I'm not talking about your big outdoor festivals, but your your big you know your arenas and stadia and stuff like that are going to have th- the capacity potentially to serve you an espresso martini you know if it's canned or whatever and and people would i think prefer that for not just because it tastes better but also it feels more in line with the experience they want to have yeah no i think you're right i think um i think there's a lot of opportunities there and you know the other thing that i didn't think about until we were chatting about it last at the event last night as well is like there are a lot of bars who out of all of the sort of canned rtds the thing that's like the most annoying for them to make is an espresso martini and it's getting ordered so often that like, yeah, sure. Just have this behind the bar, crack the can into the shaker, shake it and give it to somebody and be like, yeah, here's your espresso martini. Especially if that's like not part of your normal cocktail program. Yeah. Right. It's just such an easy thing. The person comes in and asks for it. 
Here's the espresso martini. Here's the espresso martini we do, right? Super easy as opposed to, you know, I don't know a lot of bar programs that are going to have maybe the candled fashion behind the bar or a can or, you know, a bottled Negroni or things like that. Like, they yeah. know they can make those. But having to have like the coffee ready and all that stuff, like this is just so simple. Yeah. So, anyways, what I want to talk about this, uh, this week is something that a lot of people have been chatting about recently, and that is have we reached peak pop up bar? Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is not pop-up bar like the sort of kitsch bars that you see around the holidays, like Sip and Santa Surf Shack and things like that, but more there's been a massive, massive amount of pop-up bars in terms of bars from one city Takeover. going to another city for like a week, yeah, right? And saying like, oh, this is Dante does London or Katana Kitten does Los Angeles, you know, does something in Los Angeles or, you know a bar from London comes over and, and does it here. So you, you're seeing it a lot more. And one of the questions a lot of people are asking is like, kind of what's the point? And are you actually getting the true bar experience when right. that happens? Right. And what's gained and what's lost by this thing that seems to be being done more and more and more, but like kind of what's the point. And I had a really interesting conversation at, um, at the next wave party with GN, who's one of the owners of Double Chicken Please. And I was asking him like, oh, well, you know, now that you've like, you've won our award, you've won top 50, all, all this other stuff. Like, do you think you'll do this more? Because uh, they haven't really done it. And he was actually saying, no, he, they don't plan to, that they're sort of starting to view this. There's, there seems to be backlash even from certain bar owners of like, well, I don't know how we would establish our aesthetic yeah. like somewhere else and how we would do that effectively. And I guess for me, I thought about that too. Like if I was a consumer and I showed up at a bar that I tried really hard to get into, like, let's say that I got into like the little red door mm-hmm. right in Paris. And for whatever reason that week they were doing a pop-up with, I don't know, Katana kitten. I'd be so disappointed. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I live in New York. Like I can go to Katana kitten. It's a great bar, but like, I don't need to experience it in Paris when I want to experience this bar. Right. And I also don't see how those bars you would get the same Katana Kitten vibe, you know, yeah, sure. You can play, like you can play the soundtrack that they would play a Katana Kitten. You can, you know, have some of the glassware, but like you're still in the space that was designed to be this really great bar in Paris. And so I guess even for me, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, I, I don't fully understand it and feel like the only way it truly works is like if the bar is able to almost design a space to feel like their space where they are. Otherwise, like, can't you just send the recipes and let somebody else make them? Yeah, I guess that's a good point. But I do feel like especially, you know, take Double Chicken Please, for example, say they pop up in Paris, a lot of the atmosphere and the aesthetic will be lost. You have to assume, right, they have their tap tails in the front. The bar is split a very specific mm-hmm. way. But for somebody who lives in Paris who has heard so much about this winning bar um, and how unique it is to be able to get a cold Japanese noodle cocktail yeah. in Paris is a really cool opportunity. And that's where I think this the popularity of these takeovers has come from. I also think you can't overstate. There's a sort of both ego trip, I think, that goes along with it, or ego boost, I should say, maybe not ego trip. Uh, you know, you're the the bartender, owner, proprietor, whatever of this bar, and you're now taking your show on the road. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are validated by that. And also I think it's maybe maybe we're maybe the like Paris to New York or London to New York comparison isn't 
maybe the most apt. I think where you're seeing a lot of this happening is in either other cities around North America that don't have maybe the same density of great cocktail bars as New York City and Mm -hmm. or other parts of the world where cocktail culture isn't as established. Paris could perhaps fit in there, of course, but even more so you see it in other parts of Europe, in other parts of the world, frankly. And there I think you can see more of the at least – you know, theoretical idea behind this, which is like, let's bring this cool thing that we do to an audience that, as Joanna was sort of pointing out, like a lot of people, even if they one day choose to go to New York and they want to visit and they're big cocktail lovers and they're going to go to six great cocktail bars mm-hmm. on their trip, they're not going to hit all of them. And that's a once in a, maybe not a lifetime, but once in a rare while kind of experience. And so, right. you know, it, we were funny, we were talking about concerts before and it's like, you know, why do musicians go on tour? Because like they have fans all over the place and, you know, yes, some of them do a Vegas residency now and they bring their fans to them and that's a whole thing. But a lot of them still tour widely because it's a way to, to kind of, you know, hit every market where you or some markets where you might be popular, where you're going to, you know, frankly, make money. And I think, you know, for a lot of these people, it's probably there's an element of fun to it, right? You know, the, the truth is, is that, you know, even running a great bar, I'm sure has its grind to it. It's, you know, sort of mundane elements. And so doing something where you're taking yourself out of your normal environment, challenging yourself to translate what you do to a new space, a new city, a new continent, perhaps, could be invigorating in a way that, you know, maybe it's played out now. Maybe that's was true five years ago. And now because it's become more and more common that for some or, and or with some bars, it seems to be their like perpetual state of popping up somewhere. Um, but I think on the other hand, I can understand why for a certain kind of practitioner and or uh, proprietor, it's really appealing still. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only play- time that I struggle with it is when it is these bars that are so specific in terms of their look and yeah. feel and experience. And it, it feels kind of like, oh, I don't know how you fully gain that experience somewhere else that really makes the place truly special. Like, yes, I get that probably 75% of it is the drinks, but 25% of it is that yeah. space. And so that's where I could see a place like Double Chicken Please that cares so much about the aesthetic saying like, yeah, if we ever did it, it would have to be in a raw space that we design mm-hmm. that we sort of say, okay, cool. We're going to come for a full week, but it's going to feel like the R on the walls. It's going to feel like sort of our vibe. The thing that, I, that I'm really fascinated by as I sort of started digging into why this is happening more and more is actually – a lot of bartenders have said it's not happening so much to give consumers a great experience. It's to gain the bar more international attention for these rankings. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. I mean. It's because these judges for these awards we've talked about on this podcast before exist all over the world. And the idea is if you can pop up in cities where they live and you can show that, like, you're part of this community, you get on their radar much faster. And so there's a bar in the Lower East Side. um, I won't name it, but, like, you can probably figure out which one it is, who this is their specific tactic. Mm -hmm. It's like they're specifically doing this to help get on the radar, which is smart. I mean, it's a really quick way to do it as long as you have – you know, the financial ability to travel around the world and, and go to bars and you have those relationships. So, yeah. you know, that like some of these top bars will already, already invite you, right. You can already say, Hey, we're getting attention in New York, but also like we're already in the club, right? Like 
this this great bar, bar let's say Baratesian in London like they already invited us we're doing a pop up there mm-hmm. or again Limon Tour they know us they invite us we're doing a pop up there right. these are bars that are already on the the top fifty list so then it's like oh okay well then maybe they're already in the club right and it's a lot it, it happens a lot faster than hoping you just get enough press and accolades that you wind up there on your own which is potentially like what happened with Double Chicken Please right they didn't do any of the, the pop-ups before they mm-hmm. just were so well known. They were already kind of like on people's radars. Yeah. Um, but I find that fascinating as well. It's really not for the consumer. It's not sort of to give that experience to someone else who won't right. have the opportunity. But I also think it's like the relationships that I'm sure GN and Faye have mm-hmm. with other bars around the world yeah, totally. too. And, but I, but I do think that it kind of re it continues to like these bars on the list taking over another bar on the list kind of reinforces why this is meaningful yeah and and then meaningful to consumers as well yeah true yeah. although there's also the risk of course of it becoming as it perhaps already is this sort of uh somewhat closed off to the outside network right where you know people are you know the the sort of bars and people within the sort of uh velvet rope uh, that you might consider the top 50 type lists if the only people they're bringing in to do pop-ups are other bars on that list or other bars that maybe are, are aspiring to be on that list, you know, it, it, it does yeah, feel a little insular. Right? I want to, yeah. I want to ask you guys a question though, that I think we were sort of touching on and I think mm-hmm. is important to discuss here or to think about here is to what extent is the experience of going to a bar, maybe a famous cocktail bar defined by the drinks you drink or the, environment, the ambiance, the the setting, because we've been talking about this. And I think you've both sort of said that one of the things that maybe doesn't work with some of these pop-ups or could at least be a challenge is that, sure, you can bring the recipe over. You can get the exact drink prepared for you in this pop-up experience in another mm-hmm. place, but that you can't translate the experience of being in that bar. And what I wonder is, do most people give a shit? Like, does it is it enough for them to say, I'm drinking the Waldorf salad cocktail from Double Chicken, please, in this hypothetical pop-up that they're not doing. And who cares what, whether where the fuck I'm sitting for that? Like, I do wonder if, if – I'm just curious. I don't have an answer. I'm not even sure how I feel personally because I think about some of my favorite cocktail bars in Seattle and other places. And it's certainly true that the vibe of the place is a good component of what I like about the bar. But the drinks do obviously matter. So I don't know. I'm I'm wondering, do we feel like it's, you know, in that sort of uh, recipe, I guess it would be, of a great mm-hmm. cocktail bar, you know, how much of it is the stuff that can't be transported? I think that it's a lot of it. For me, I think it's yeah. a lot about yeah. the vibe, the service, the place. I mean, look, we've we've had this conversation on the podcast before. I mean, there's a very famous bar in Rome that everyone talks about that I hated and so did my <laughs> wife because of the smoking. Like that's part of their ambiance, right? They allow smoking in the space. It's very small. You know, for me, I don't care how expertly they're recreating classic cocktails. For me, I was like, this is not pleasurable, right? I don't need to breathe in lots of nicotine. If they took those cocktails and brought them to New York, I'd be like, wow, maybe <laughs> they're executing some great cocktails, but like they're winning an award for the overall experience, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I, I get, oh, we're being so true to the speakeasy. They used to be able to smoke. Okay, well, you didn't have speakeasies in Italy. So, you know, I don't know what we're doing here. But um, I, I do I do think it matters. I think, you know, you also have bad experiences when 
when you have rude service, right? I, there's another bar that does not exist anymore in New York, but I never really liked it, even though it had so many accolades because the, the few times I went, I had horrible service. The, the people who were working at the time were very, very rude, mm -hmm. even though the person who owns it and the team, like a lot of the team were, were known as being very nice. Like it's mm -hmm. just, I didn't have great experiences and you know, maybe that was the time I went, it was crowded, et cetera. Maybe they had been too overwhelmed with the amount of press they had gotten. But I think those are the types of things that do really matter. The music does matter how loud it is, how soft it is at what, like what kind of music they're playing. Like, you know, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not gonna have a really great time. If any place is still playing Kanye West, like don't want to hear him. Like don't want to hear that kind of like that music and that hate anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those types of things matter, I think a lot and influence the drink in the same way that that kind of stuff influences your food too. And, and the experience you have at, at a dinner, I think it's the same thing. I think we, we, it's, it's overly simple to think that it's, it could just be the drinks. Cause it, it also, it can never just be the food, right? It's the Michelin rewards, these stars based on places that like also crush service. Yeah, I, I think that, but I do think that especially for in the instances where a drink is famous mm -hmm. or has been written about. Yeah. That's when people, that's when like maybe the vibe and overall experience kind of takes a backseat to actually having that drink. And you know that you maybe have Sam Ross will come and make you a paper plane or Toby will come and make you, Toby would never ever do a takeover. <laughs> we know that. Um, but like Toby would make you a cosmopolitan. Like that's but a cool experience. It is. But, but I guess my argument is like for some of these drinks, and this is maybe another podcast, but like for some of these drinks, can't someone else who's a great bartender just make the recipe and I can feel like yeah. I had a penicillin and I didn't need Sam Ross to make it? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a, that, that comes back to the fundamental point here too, which is like weirdly there is a, a degree – this is probably not totally fair, but whatever. I'll just say it. There is an element of condescension to the whole notion of these sort of takeovers and pop-ups, which is kind of like – depending on where they're taking over. And it's one thing, maybe if it's another top 50 bar or something like that, you know, then it's maybe it loses some of this, but we've seen some of these pop-ups. Um, I've certainly seen them happen here in Seattle a couple of times with, you know, like perfectly fine bars that aren't necessarily like going to be on anyone's list of great bars in the world. And there's a little bit of like, <laughs> okay, step aside, let's let the pros in. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, you know, I, the truth is, is that with some few exceptions that are noteworthy, a lot of the drinks that we're talking about in a lot of these bars are replicable by any talented bartender. Like you, as long as they have the, the recipe, I mean, you know, the skill in assembling some of these drinks is uh, at a level where, again, someone who's got some experience and knows what they're doing should be able to do it. And with, you know, with some exceptions, I think there is an element of, I think a thing that used to happen and maybe still does happen in the, in the bartending community is a lot of, you know, sort of putting drinks on, on menus that other people invented and crediting them and sort of being like, Hey, we recognize that this is a drink you might want to try that someone else came up with. And, and we think it's really good and we're going to make it. We're going to try and be faithful to it. We're going to credit that person, but we're not going to, you know, but we're going to make it. We're going to, we're going to bring that bit of their bar to you in whatever form we can. Mm. And to me, I think, I think the thing where the sort of famous bar descends from on high to grace, uh, you know, some other locale with their, greatness or whatever is maybe it's exciting for people. Maybe it's exciting for cocktail lovers in that community who feel 
a degree of giddiness. But like, to be completely honest, and this is not meant as an insult at any famous bartender, I don't really feel like my life is incomplete because like Toby has never made me a Cosmo. Like I've had many Cosmos. It's a great drink. I don't think it really matters to me who makes it as long as they know what they're doing. And in fact, probably I would, uh, if I were ever at his bar, I would never order that drink. Because I think if you've listened to Cocktail College, you know his feelings on the drink and uh, probably (laughs) low on his list of, of priorities to make anyone that drink ever again. Yeah. I mean, there's just something, I also think that there's like, I don't know, there is something cool about going to the bar the person actually conceived of in their brain and having yeah. either the, either a drink there that made them famous or something else. I mean, I guess the other thing too is that for a lot of these places that become super famous, I think it is almost all about the ambiance because the person who created the drink for the most part is almost never behind the bar. Right. Right. Like it's just like the, it's just like the chef, right? Jean George is not back there. y'all. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> he's not Bobby Flay for sure. Isn't, I mean, <laughs> you know, who, who even knows that guy's doing anymore. Uh, but you know, oh, he's just on food network. He's, yeah. He does shows. Yeah. Like Tom Colicchio dude is not there. <laughs> like, I'm, it's cool. You gotta, you know, you got, you got a reservation at craft suite, but like you're, you know, he's not there anymore. Yeah. It's, he has a great trained team who's doing the work and executing recipes he has influence in, but like he might not even be creating any, most of the recipes anymore. And a lot of these bar teams are, are more responsible for the recipes than the people that help found the place. So then again, it just comes this idea of like, maybe a pop could a pop up be as simple as like, let's send our recipes to this great bar and let them and give them license to make those recipes for the next week. I don't know. Well, I have a question for you guys. Would you rather go to some like a takeover of a mm-hmm. bar in another city? Yeah. Or that bar that bar's franchise in another city? Ooh. That's a Cuz that gosh. is theoretically the the atmosphere, the Applebee's vibe. me baby. No. <laughs> you know that's not what I meant. Eating good in the neighborhood. Sorry, no. drinking good in the neighborhood. Uh, yeah. I always had it. We're like synthesizing a couple of conversations we've had recently, yeah, right? Which exactly. is to what extent are any of these pop ups being looked at as establishing a beachhead, perhaps, right? If you have really great response to your takeover or your pop up in another city, does that give you more sort of motivation to perhaps open a bar there? I mean, I, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I do think that one thing that's that's maybe true about cocktail bars, even perhaps more so than restaurants because certainly we've seen you know certain restaurateurs open versions of their famous restaurants in other cities i do wonder and this came up when we were talking about the franchising of cocktail bars to what extent there is a little bit of territorialism um i think you know pushback comes pretty swiftly Mm -hmm. and the cocktail world is very I, i think there would be it would be interesting to see what would happen if that model of opening satellite locations of famous cocktail bars became more commonplace because I think there would be a lot of pushback from the cocktail bars in that city that already exists that are Mm one-offs or local or whatever. Um, Because again, it has this air. uh, I mean, maybe Vegas is the place for it. It seems like a good place for franchising restaurants and bar concepts everywhere. But I think a lot of other cities, it would be very hard to, there'd be a lot of pushback. I mean, I just know here in Seattle, we've had, more with restaurants, but there's been a lot of San Francisco and Los Angeles based restaurant companies that have tried to open here and, and largely failed. And, you know, maybe for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, but some of it is just, there's a little bit of, you know, like I said, territorialism. Uh, and I don't think Seattle is unique in that regard. Yeah, true. Well, I'd love to hear what everyone else thinks who listens. Shoot us an email at podcast.divinepair.com. Let us know sort of your thoughts on pop-ups in general, franchises, 
recipes, takeovers, everything. Really curious. If you're in the industry as well, hit us up. Have you done these before? Yeah. Uh, Would you be interested in doing them further? And uh, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you on Friday. Have a great week. Sounds great.